grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's kind of hard to know where to begin when it comes to our gospel reading for today from John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and it's filled actually with a whole bunch of images and echoes and reverberations that find their way all the way back to the beginning, to the creation of the universe and all the way into the future where Jesus promises to come again and restore and renew and recreate this broken world. And so from the context of the book of John to the context of the whole entire work of God in history to the context of our lives here today, the message of this text, this miracle, in many ways it is completely simple, yet in many ways it is entirely complex in a rich, intricate, divine sort of way. A number of years ago, you may remember in our life group, big uh, fall campaign uh, push, we did a study of the uh, Gospel of John, the I Am Statements of Jesus of the Gospel of John, and we had a whole sermon series, whole study on it. And one of the commentators in there, Gary Baumler, he stated this. He said, the Gospel of John is a shallow pool in which a child can wade. For even a child will come away with the message, believe and live. But then he continued to write and said, at the same time, this gospel is an ocean. It's an ocean full of wonders that the most eager explorer cannot fully fathom in a lifetime of searching. My friends, there is an ocean full of exploration in our gospel reading this morning. Yet at the same time, there is a shallow pool which everybody can wade into. So as we consider Jesus' miracle, his very first miracle of turning water into wine, if you ever thought that miracles don't happen today, let me tell you, I was at the grocery store a few weeks back before Thanksgiving and Easter. I was kind of, you know, shopping at Bevmo, buying some wine for Thanksgiving and Christmas celebration, and look what I discovered Jesus had been there. He turned the whole water section into wine, man. He is alive today. All right. That's an old joke. I think I've used it before. Sorry if I have. But anyway. But as we let this miracle of Jesus speak to our lives today, turning water into wine, I think it invites us, it invites us to consider the things that we want from God and from our relationship with him. Because I think in the context of our lives, we all have specific problems or challenges or situations or things in our lives that if we're honest with ourselves, we want a sign from God. We want an event that makes known to us his presence in our lives and delivers a renewed sense of belief and trust and faith and dependence upon him and love for him. In the midst of our problems, our challenges, the situations, the midst of our lives. And, uh, kind of reminded me of just even just this past last night. I was driving over to church, and on came the radio, came that song, I'm a Child of God. Then I came to CR, uh, Celebrate Recovery Worship, and Higgins was, Chris Higgins was leading the worship there, and we sang, I am a Child of God. And by the way, it was a great night of worship last night. Praise God to Chris and Susan for leading that ministry, right? Praise God. <laughs> and then I'm driving home from church about 10 o'clock last night, turned on the radio, and... What was the song? I am a child of God. I think I needed to hear that. 
I needed to hear that I am a child of God. That's my primary number one identity. That's what Raiden hears, hears this morning. I am a son of God. I am a child of God. I am a daughter of God. That's what we all need to hear. And it made me wonder, is that a sign from God? A sign from God, something that I needed to hear. But before we go down that road, I want to ask you a question. If you were God, all right, if you were God, and for some of you in the room, that is completely hard to imagine. And for other you, others of you in the room, uh, you can ask your spouse or your coworkers that maybe you need a little dose of humility, all right? It might be good for you. But if you were God and you had taken on flesh and you were born of woman, you've come to earth as Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the creator of the cosmos, what would your first miracle be? God, who created the cosmos, the earth and the stars and the universe and everything in it, what would your first miracle be? Show up at a party and turn water into wine? In fact, a theologian by the name of Hengel, he said this. He said this of this miracle. He said, one is puzzled by its profane nature. Another ancient community called the Marcionites, they mocked this miracle. They basically actually cut it out of their Bible, saying, far be it from us to believe that our Lord went there to that party as if God were too lofty to come to a wedding and indulge us humans in such a capacity others have ridiculed it as a luxury miracle encouraging pleasure and excess another man named Debellius he doubted the very existence of this miracle because it in no way could have anything to do with the Protestant ethos all these men apparently thought they were God if I were God, I would have yada, 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 right? And so they actually mocked the miracle of Jesus. They tried to erase it from the Bible. They tried to assert their own divinity over Jesus. And that, my friends, is a dangerous place to be. You see, you and I, thank God, we are not God. You and I, we do better to search a little more deeply into this text, to go past the wading pool and to peer into the oceanic depths of this text and to see that really this miracle, this event of God is magnificent, it is glorious, it is divine, it is mind-blowing. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third Day. From the beginning, this little section starts out with deep echoes and reverberations throughout the scriptures. What else happened on the third day, right? Jesus rose from the grave. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Jesus came to the wedding. Jesus comes down into the very midst of our lives, to our weddings, to times of great meaning for us, to times of unity and celebration. He comes to parties, and he eats and he drinks with us, us sinful people. We are important to him. Marriage is holy to him. Times of celebration and abundance have significance for what it means to be part of humanity, to be part of God's creation. I remember, I remember feeling that very way at my own wedding. It was divine day. In fact, 17 years ago, I asked my wife to marry her this very day, okay? So she, said, she said yes, it was a good day, all right. <laughs> but I remember even thinking about this recently. Scott and Lorraine, Scott who's running our, our sound today. At his wedding, Brian and Lindsay Caban, Lindsay's singing up there, those weddings just recently. Maybe a year ago, actually, it is now, I don't know. But those are great days. 
great celebrations, great moments of God's presence in our lives. And in fact, you go into the Old Testament and the wedding, the wedding celebration became a symbol of God's love for his people. Verse 3, we continue on. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she may have been helping host this wedding. She could have been close friends of the wedding couple. We don't know for sure, but at any rate, in Jesus' day, when you held a wedding, it was a huge social faux pas to run out of wine. I mean, we kind of expected it right today a little bit, right? You go to a wedding, the bar might only be open for a little bit, and they close it off. But in Jesus' day, wedding celebrations could last a, an entire week, and to run out of wine would be damaging to the host's reputation and their standing in the society. And so Jesus responds to his mother Mary. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, when we hear that word woman, we have kind of like, well, that's kind of crazy. Why are you talking to your mom that way? It wasn't like that, okay? It, it, it was more like uh, dear woman or ma'am, as we would use today. But it would odd for Jesus to call his mom this word. And here's part of the oceanic depths of this text. It's possible that when Jesus is addressing his mom this way, that we see Jesus starting to distance himself from his own mother. In the sense that his identity as the son of God is far more important for Mary and for all of humanity. Because Mary ultimately needs Jesus to be her savior far more than she needs him to be her son. I mean, that, there's an ocean of depth there. You fast forward, this text is intricately connected to John chapter 19. It's the only other time we see Mary in the gospel of John. And again, he calls Jesus calls his mom, Mary. He calls her woman, dear woman, ma'am. John chapter 19, he entrusts his mother's care to John, the beloved disciple, to, to be her earthly son, to take care of her. He does it when he's hanging from the cross. That was his hour. That is what he meant when he said, my hour has not yet come. And that's when we start to see in this text that Jesus has more in mind here than just turning water into to wine. He has in mind why he came. He has in mind the abundance that he will bring in his death and his resurrection for all. Chapter 2, verse 5 continues and says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Okay? They would wash their hands to think they could get closer to God by washing their hands in these big jars. Each of them held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus just provided 180 gallons of wine, my friends. That's 900 bottles that we're used to. Okay? And this is not just a bunch of two-buck chuck, all right? 
This is the good stuff. Maybe like Justin, Isosceles, or maybe Justin Justification for us Lutherans. <clears throat> All right, anyway. It was, it was way more wine than they needed for the rest of the week. 900 bottles of wine was a huge abundance, way more than any wedding would need, especially toward the end of the party. And you see, when Jesus changes this water to wine, he's not just helping out a young couple in a social setting, right? He is doing that. But what he's actually doing, he's saying something new is here. He's taking those old Jewish ceremonial laws, and he's replacing them. He's eradicating them. He's showing them to be useless. He's saying you cannot be holy. You cannot have abundance. You cannot have real life by washing your hands in these big stone jars. He's saying you'll never get to God that way. God's got to come to you. God has come to you. God is here. I am here, Jesus says. He says, I'm not bringing water, I'm bringing wine, and I'm bringing so much of it, you can't even fathom it. You see, in Jesus' day, they primarily drank water and wine, and the water that they had back then, let's just say it wasn't Crystal Geyser or Lake Arrowhead or Fiji or any of that sort of stuff, right? They had, they had to drink wine because of the parasites and the unfiltered water of the day. Wine settled your stomach. Wine was always better than water in those days, just like it is today. Okay, just kidding. I'm 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 just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, think of the most important meals, right? Think of the most important meals and celebrations that you've had in your life or that we have in our culture today. Usually, wine is there. You don't go to a fancy restaurant on your anniversary and order a vintage bottle of water, right? The waiter doesn't come out to you over at The Hobbit and ask you, would you like a 1988 bottle of Crystal Geyser? Or well, let me recommend the 1974 Fiji. Those water bottles are square. If you tip them over, they don't roll, that sort of thing. They don't do that, right? And they don't come out with the Charles Shaw either. We save the best of wines for the best of occasion. The better the occasion, the better the wine. The master of the banquet says to the groom, says, you have saved the best till now. And in these words, we realize that though he's talking to the groom, those words are really about Jesus. God has saved the best wine till now, and he's brought an almost unfathomable abundance. And when we look at this text, when we look at the depth of it, we see that this wine is really a sign. It's a sign from God pointing us to so much more, that Jesus is bringing abundance, and he's bringing more than laws, he's bringing more than regulations, he's bringing more than rules. In fact, you go back into the Old Testament, you see that wine was associated with the future coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. Wine was associated with joy and celebration and peace and prosperity. Wine is the image of God's covenantal love. You go all the way back to the Genesis, and it talks about the Messiah King, that he would wash his clothing in wine. You look in the book of Isaiah, he prophesies of a feast for all people, a feast of fine, refined, aged wine. You look at the book of Amos, and it talks about when Israel will be restored and the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Wine is symbolic all throughout the Old Testament of the age of salvation. And Jesus is saying salvation is here. And we say, yes, God, you have saved the best till now. That's why John writes in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, 
what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. It was the first of the signs through which he, that is Jesus, revealed his glory. And what did his disciples do? They believed in him. That's just not like an intellectual thing. They trusted him. They had faith in him. They put their lives, they entrusted their lives to him. They utterly depended upon him. They loved him. We all have situations in our life where we are yearning for God to show us a sign, right? It could be a simple thing. It could be a big thing. It could be a tragic thing. It could be just a daily thing. It could be a child or a spouse or a parent with a disease. It could be a loved one who has died and we feel empty and we grieve and we are alone. It could be that someone in our life has wandered from God. It could be a work situation that is filled with tension. It could be a spouse who has left you. It could be a job that is lost or a financial burden or a decision that's looming on the horizon. It could be all sorts of things. We all have weddings in our lives where there's not enough wine. And the surprise is that Jesus shows up. He shows up with abundant grace that we cannot even imagine. But see, the problem is we're often looking for a miracle. And when we're looking for a miracle, we're looking for the wrong way. We need to look for a sign. A sign is an event that makes God alive to you. Maybe the sign that God has for you this morning, especially for little Raiden, is the baptism, the water and the word coming into his life. Maybe the sign for you this morning is this very worship service and the lyrics and the words and and the confession of the Apostles' Creed or whatever. Maybe the sign for you, it could be this week when you open up the Word of God and you read it and you go deeper into the oceanic depths of the Gospel of John and you're reminded the presence of God in your life. It could be that you're driving down the road and you flip on the radio and you hear the song Oceans or I'm a Child of God or whatever it is. Maybe it's you gathering with your life group. Maybe it's on Thursday night you're going to show up to Jeff Newell's house at 6.30 p.m. with 150 other guys. And that'll, you will see a sign that God is present in your life. It could you be going to lunch with somebody, a friend, your spouse, talking and praying and forgiving each other. Maybe a fellow believer will reach out to you this week. It could be a sign. Maybe you glance over at your children in wonder and awe at their creation, a sign from God. Maybe this very morning you're thinking about your own baptismal identity as we baptize Raiden. Maybe some of you in the room have not yet been baptized and you're saying, I want to be baptized, a sign from God. Next week, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the wine will be flowing, right? A sign from God. Just as we've dug deep down into this text this morning, the reality is that there are signs all over, all around us, and sometimes we just need to stop, look up, open our eyes, and see the signs of his glory all around us. That's my prayer for you. We've all got problems. We've all got challenges. We've all got situations, big or small. We've all got weddings where the wine has run dry. And I hope you hear this morning that God cares about every one of them. It's why he sent his son Jesus. He saved the very best for us. His hour came, and on the third day, he rose from the grave, his glory revealed.
That, my friends, is a sign for all of us to hold on to.